This is the Humanity First Podcast. I am Chris Ryan, and it's time for another edition of Ask the CEO. As Bamsey CEO, Peter Evers, takes your questions. If you have a question for Peter, uh, you can email askceo at bamsey.org. Again, that's askceo at bamsey.org. Peter, how are you? Good, thanks, Chris. How are you doing? I am well. Appreciate you uh, joining us. So we have some questions Today, and we're going to start off with one about um, how the fire at Brockton Hospital affected uh, Bamsey. First off, you know, what's the, the latest on that, and how did it affect Bamsey? Extraordinary thing. Um, and it, it's funny, actually, because somebody, uh, a friend of mine in another in Europe, actually uh, sent me an email saying, Is, does this affect you? So it's, it was world news. And when you think about it, it really was, for those people who don't know, which is, I'm sure, nobody at this point, um, signature um, healthcare Brockton Hospital had a fire in a transformer box about a week and a half ago, probably two weeks ago, uh, that has absolutely paralyzed the hospital. Um, nobody was hurt, which is great news, but uh, patients have had to be transferred to lots of other local hospitals. And you can imagine the strain that's on all of those uh, hospitals, Good Sam being uh, the nearest South Shore uh, Morton and many others um, are really struggling with the with the number of people who would o- ordinarily use that service. Um, we are affected in it by really wanting to help. Um, the mayor is having uh, half an hour meetings three times a week uh, with the hospital to say how does Brockton manage uh, this situation. We've um, been in touch with our partners at Department of Mental Health and at Good Sam offering uh, services for um, uh, mobile respite, for instance. And we're actually also talking about maybe uh, offering some services for um, assessment of folks who are turning up in behavioral, sorry, in emergency settings um, for other levels of care. It's really all hands on deck um, for the community. And obviously, our response will be more in the behavioral health world. And I think yesterday uh, at Good Sam, which is a smaller hospital than Signature Brockton Hospital, uh, had 40 people with behavioral health issues in their emergency department. So that gives you an idea of how difficult it is. I think it's, you know, there's, there's, probably three phases of this it is how do we get our emergency department uh, back online how do we get the rest of the hospital back online and then how do we get our specialty services back and there has been talk about this being an 18 month process Mm. before the hospital is back to what it was before the fire one thing that you know many things that came from the COVID pandemic but one obviously was forced adoption where certain changes took place as a result of you know a um tragic worldwide pandemic do you see any things you know in how the community is going to look at you know hospitalization and the usage of the hospital changing moving forward where there'll be forced adoption um where maybe certain things that took place at the hospital in the past may not take place there moving forward and that perhaps plot uh, provides a roadmap for other communities you know it's really funny you should say that chris you've really got your finger on the pulse of this one i mean one of the things that we've been trying to do uh, all over the country and world is keep people away from emergency right. departments we've talked before on this show about the iatrogenic effects of people who go in to an emergency department especially those people with behavioral health issues because oftentimes they're subject to further trauma there um but people still come people that we see still come to the ed one of the things that Brockton is doing is setting up urgent care campuses away from the hospital. And the thought is that people will be sort of begin to think, oh, well, if I go to urgent care behavioral health, 
then maybe I'll get seen quicker. Or they'll have that experience and say, well, that's better than sitting in an ED for eight hours before you see a doctor. Because as you know, if somebody goes in with a, with a mental health or a substance use disorder issue, they're not going to be seen until the broken legs and right. the split heads and all of those things are, uh, are seen. So I think that you know, if something does come out of this good, it would perhaps be a community that thinks a little bit differently about how we utilize the emergency department. That's a piece. And the other thing that kind of jumps out is you know, folks are, are hospitalized um, – generally be outside of that because they are in you know up in the need of, of urgent uh care that's kind of around the clock um do you ever foresee you know with the kind of the aging at home process and a focus on that i mean it's i would assume much easier to have kind of a centralized entity where you have everyone and resources and, and people um ha- do you see any changes in in that potentially moving forward where there'll be more care provided in a home-based setting as opposed to a hospital? Totally think it's happening already. You know, when I think about, um, we've had a bereavement in my family recently, and um, um, the person was entirely treated at home. I mean, the the course of the illness was very short in the end. Um, So the hospital bought in the bed. There was not 24-hour, but there was nursing two or three times a day. And there was a level of comfort with that relative of mine that I that he wouldn't have had had he been in the hospital. I think we're moving towards a situation where we're doing more and more of that. You know, we're moving away from, although we still have hospice, but hospice at home right. is a very fast-growing um, level of care, if you like. And if you ask anybody, um, you know, we both lost parents, but if you ask anybody where they want to have their last, you know, few days or whatever, it's not the hospital, is it? It's surrounded by, you know, people that they love. Um, I think it. we have to find a way to thread the needle about resources, because you're absolutely right, to treat people in one place that has massive efficiency. Right. If you have a traveling nurse, the nurse has to go many, many miles in between each place as opposed to walking next door yeah. and um, taking care of that you know person. So that's, that's a problem, particularly when you have a nursing shortage, shortage is yeah. the availability of, of people. But, you know, I... You think about um, different ways to dress up because I think you make a really good point where most people want to be able to receive hospice care or if they know that um, things are going to end to you know die in their home, right. but they're told that you know the resources aren't available for that, it's not feasible, mm-hmm. etc. So yeah, I mean, how do you kind of marry those those two things? Where do you train? loved ones in order to try to provide care as opposed to a nurse like that's that i think is a conversation that's ongoing no yeah it's i mean there's an awful lot that has to happen but if you think about it it's happening more and more i mean you know 35 years ago we weren't going into people's houses to provide mental health care right we didn't have in-home teams we didn't have intensive care coordination teams that get to see the whole family in action. I mean, how cool is that versus having a kid come in and sit behind a desk uh, or, or, or sort of play games in the office? You know, we're, we're moving much, much more to a community-based sort of care. And, and maybe, as you say, maybe this hospital experiment will bear that out a little bit more. No, definitely. And yeah, there's a lot of different uh, opportunities that come from things that obviously don't start off all that great. I want to uh, switch gears a little bit, but actually uh, kind of in the same ballpark. 
Um, there's a deadline that's upcoming uh, that folks are wondering about in regard to Medicaid eligibility. Um, what can you tell me about that and who's going to be affected and uh, kind of dynamics around yeah, it? Yeah, that's going to be a huge deal. As you know, um, and as people I'm sure know, the President Biden has made an announcement that the actual end of the emergency powers post uh, the beginning of the pandemic is going to come to an end. And that's going to be, I believe, on May the 17th this year. Now, there's been plenty of false dawns with this because, you know, it's been extended probably seven or eight times since. But this really is the end of that. So what does that mean? Um, If you cast your mind back to March the 13th or whenever it was, 2020, The government, both at state and federal level, decided to suspend all eligibility determinations for benefits for SNAP, uh, for um, mass health, uh, in our case, for Medicaid. Um, Bearing in mind that people needed treatment and, you know, we were working on a vaccine and we weren't going to get put anything in the way of people getting that because we had a public health emergency, much the same, you know, as the uh, 1919 um, flu epidemic. Same thing. Um, That's coming to an end, which means that around about 500,000 people, it's a big, big nut in terms of Massachusetts, which is what, six and a half million, 500,000 people are at risk of being determined ineligible for that mass health and uh, and, uh, SNAP. Uh, food stamp uh, eligibility. That is because they they don't meet the income requirements that was lifted back in. So we're not actually we're we're, we're putting those restrictions back in place for people. Um, and some people will be fine with it because they'll be back at work. And this is really just bringing the determination system back into place. It does have a lot of repercussions for us because the majority of people that use our services have mass health, have Medicaid. Uh, and so we need to be able to help people through that process of putting their redetermination packet back in uh, and making sure they don't miss that. Now, our folks are going to receive a blue envelope. There's a lot of talk about a blue envelope, although I worry because I get a lot of blue envelopes that are usually credit card uh, offers at zero percent. But these these uh, redetermined applications will come in blue envelopes and our staff have toolkits to help uh, people make sure that they don't miss out or their kids don't miss out. Um, it really will have an effect on those people who use our uh, in-home services that I mentioned before, the uh, clinic services uh, and our dayhab services as well on the developmental disability side. We have uh, a person who is trained specifically around that, Julie Whitaker, and she's going to be working with Helpline. We anticipate Helpline, which is our smallest program with a big kick, helping our community. Um, we're going to get a lot of co- uh, calls about that. We'll be fielding those, doing our bit to help. And I think the whole community is coming together to say everybody who needs coverage should get coverage um, because we need to help them do the paperwork. So the eligibility requirements aren't changing. Nope. Uh, it's just the fact that people weren't um, requesting previous and now they're going to have to request is that correct yeah we're going back to um march you know 12th of 2020 and in your view you know are is there a need for um you know expanded reimbursements or anything of of that nature just looking at medicaid as a whole as a legislative session has begun here in massachusetts new governor 
Um, what is you know your sense about the, the rates of reimbursement? Is it adequate at this point in time? Does it need to, to change? Um, how do you feel about that? Well, I'm never going to say it's adequate. Right. <laughs> not, not right now I'm going to say it's adequate, Chris, because, we, because we've come through a pandemic where essentially the essential workers in our communities put us all on their backs, including the, the um, DSPs, the direct service uh, professionals and the nurses running our 24-7 programs. They, they did. They put this organization on their back and they brought us through. We have done our best over the last uh, couple of years to recognize that in terms of our grand bargain, which we've talked about, where we decided to raise pay levels when we didn't have the rates to do it. We still don't. We're still far behind. Uh, our trade group, uh, the ADDP that people may have heard of, have already met with the new uh, secretary, uh, Secretary Walsh, to let her know that this is something that needs to be put right. It doesn't, in the short term, we're not going to get what we want. We've asked for uh, a movement on the Bureau of Labor Statistics for pay to go from the 50th centile to the 75th centile. So that's a move on of the average to increase by 25 percent they've offered us a three percent rise well it's better than nothing but when you think about what inflation is at the moment when you think about our staff who are dealing with double digit inflation over the last 18 months and no relief seemingly in sight anybody that has been shopping this weekend will know you know that it's out of control even basics like eggs you're paying Mm -hmm. you know six seven dollars for now that you were paying three four a year ago that really has to be adjusted for our staff and it can only be adjusted if they recognize that we need to pay our essential workforce what they're worth or at least nearer to what they're worth we had two more questions one was on inflation so we'll get to that one um and you mentioned how inflation is affecting workers here have you noticed any changes in regard to whether it's electrical costs or um have you seen prices go down of of oil and how has that affected the bottom line yeah everybody talks about the uh, about gas prices coming down but heating oil prices are not coming down now there has been a uh, a warm lining to this um it has not been the coldest winter and and uh, our plow costs are down because we're the, the state of Massachusetts is down two and a half feet on snow, snowfall levels um, from the average, which is um, a, a blessing. Um, it could have been a great deal worse. Uh, we are seeing huge increases, even in um, you know repair costs, in in build costs. Um, we're no different from everybody else. That's, this is what's happening in this country at the moment. So we have to be really careful about what we're spending money on. We've actually put in um, a series of uh, thermostats in the house so that we can make sure that we can control our costs as long as people are, of course, kept warm. Um, Two weeks ago, we had the minus 13, 14 uh, weather. Uh, Nine of our homes had burst pipes. Um, Totally understandable given, well, we have 90 of them. So 10% of our homes uh, had burst pipes on the coldest night probably for 15 years. that happens. That's going to be a huge cost to us to get fixed. We understand that. Um, we also have to have a healthy cash on hand so that we can manage those costs. We will do. We're doing well. We're doing okay with it at the moment. Um, but really, we're always fighting 
a bottom line which is always increasing, which is now why we have to advocate with our legislators, with the executive branch, with, you know, with the governor to say you have to recognize that quality care for our vulnerable populations has to be paid for and paid for for people who are the real heroes here. And that's, and that's the advocacy that we need to do. Final question is on transportation, and do you foresee any uh, improvements on transportation for a person served? Another great question. You know, the pandemic has really put a hole in our dayhab services. And when I say that, I mean people just are not able to get to dayhab. Um, many of the actually many families are reluctant to send their folks back, mm-hmm. which is perfectly fine, because again we're dealing with a vulnerable population who's coming. Um, it costs – the cost of providing uh, transportation – Jill Conlon tells this story that came from um, DDS that they asked a transportation company to give them a quote for a year's worth of transportation for somebody who had a relatively complicated medical needs today, have $95,000 for one person. You think about that and then it gives you a, a reflection of what the enormity of the problem is. Get him a Mercedes. <laughs> it's just re- right. remarkable, it's yeah. remarkable amount of money. Uh, replicate that by, you know, for us, two or 300 people who are using those services. Um, it's It's difficult. Um, we're looking at our day hub services. They are so essential. They are an essential piece of the quality of life of people who have developmental disabilities. The state cannot, and I do not believe will, walk away from this, but they can't leave us hanging uh, in terms of um, helping us get people back to Dayhab so that we can run these programs that break even because right now, right now they're not, and transportation is a part of that. Peter, as always, great to see you, and uh, thanks for taking some questions today in our Ask the CEO segment. Thank you. Again, if listeners have uh, questions for Peter, it's ask CEO at BAMSI.org. Again, ask CEO at BAMSI.org.